This, uh, this uh, particular session will be uh, more chaotic than most uh, because it's sort of a, a grab bag of everything else. Uh, the first session was basically on state threats and the second session on um, sub-state threats. And the uh, third, the fourth session will be on general economic issues. Um, this one is uh, the other, everything else. I actually wanted to have somebody do something on, uh, on complexity and uncertainty. And I tried that on Fedweiss, but he, as you'll see, uh, uh, sidestepped the assignment very, uh, very tight, ni nicely. But we're constantly basically being said that what, the world is really complex and um, that every, everything is very uncertain. And that's mostly uh, seems to have come from the idea that wh wherever I am is where it's complex. Uh, they're, they're right after the end of the Cold War, people like President Clinton uh, 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 were saying in their inaugural that the world has become much more complex and unstable than it was before. And then and the Cold War was so simple by comparison. Um, and uh, that has continued. So um, uh, but we won't have any direct presentation on that. Um, the um, the uh, let me give you a quick outline of what we'll, we'll be going through the, in the order on the program. Uh, first will be um, uh, Mark Stewart uh, from the uh, uh, University of Newcastle in Australia, who will be dealing with the issue of, of um, uh, global warming. Um, and the issue basically is if global warming takes place more or less the way uh, a lot of people say it will, is that a national security threat? Um, uh, Chris Fettweiss then uh, is taking a somewhat different angle. Um, as is also Michael Cohen. Uh, Chris will be mostly talking about the issue of why he mostly willing to agree that we've exaggerated a lot of threats and there really aren't that many threats out there. But then the question is, why do we have that? Why do we worry about that? Why do we have those kinds of fears? Uh, Michael Cohen's uh, position is, in many respects, that uh, he would also largely agree that there aren't that many uh, threats in the, in the normal sense, but the real enemy is us. Uh, and the dangers from uh, mismanaging our own economy and whether that's a security threat um, uh, or not. And finally, um, um, uh, Martin uh, Lebicki from the Rand Corporation will, very much like Mark Stewart, uh, look at an uh, area that has been um, uh, much talked about, namely cybersecurity. And uh, since there's almost certainly likely to be something along that line, the question is exactly how bad is it and does it really rise to the level of being a security threat? Um, um, so let's start with Mark Stewart. Thank you, John. And I'd just like to thank Chris and John for the invitation um, to be here today. Uh, this is new territory for me because this is, I think this is the first presentation I've given in 25 years with there's no with there's no equations, so let's <laughs> let's just see how how I how I how I cope with that. You know, as as John alluded to, there's lots of quotes from from um, the military and other experts about climate change is going to be a threat to national security. It can be a force multiplier. It, it can even even extend the war extend the war on terror. So the United States uh, Department of Defense, you know, when, you, when you read some of the reports, it, it really comes down to really four, four main threats to national security. You know, the opening, opening of the waters in, in the Arctic due to the sea ice melt, regional instability caused by refugees and food and, and flood and, and energy uh, insecurity, vulnerability of US military bases to storms, hurricanes, and other climate hazards, and increased use of, of the military for humanitarian and other, and, and other missions. So. For better or worse, I like to put this in terms of dollars to think about what, what are going to be some of the costs and benefits. And these, these issues are, are not limited to the United States. Uh, the Australian Defence Force has similar concerns as, as the British. 
So, you know, there's lots of, you know, the IPCC report just came out recently, the climate impact looks pretty bad, but you can see that there's a large amount of variability between some of these predictions about increased temperatures, sea level rise, and so on. You know, I think, I think we all know about that. That's really the hazard. What that causes, the impact, you know, there's many pubbies that talk about the doom and gloom scenarios of lots of climate refugees, more people exposed to coastal flooding, risk of, risk of malaria, it just goes on and on and on and on. Uh, the, Stern, the British Stern Review in uh, 2006 did an economic analysis and uh, Lord Stern worked out that the loss of GDP will be 10.9% every year due to climate change now and forever. That they were, they were his words. And if you put that in, in the US context, that's like losing Texas every year. Okay, so that's, it's hard to take some of these numbers at face value. And it ignores wealth creation, new technologies, human capital. So this really is worst case thinking, which, but I'll base most of my assessment on that is basically, basically to be conservative. There are positives, like climate change impact won't happen overnight, it's going to be very gradual. Um, for example, wind speeds might only change by 0.1 or 0.2% every year. So you really don't notice it from, from year to year. But over the next 100 years, you know, it might, it might become important. It ignores uh, wealth creation, new technologies, human, human capital. Um, the wealthier a society is, the more ability they, they have to adapt. And the more, because they have just have more resources to put into that, in, in, into that particular problem. Okay, so let's look, look, look at the opening, opening of, of the Arctic. And there's general agreement that by 2030, maybe 2050, you know, the polar ice caps are going to melt or at least shrink, and that can open up the Northwest Passages and, and other passages. Uh, that can reduce the transit time by ships by 4,000 miles. Uh, it also allows more rapid deployment between US forces between, between the um, Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. So it's hard to see too many negatives there. There's obviously an environmental impact, but in terms of the military, I can't see a massively bad impact because of that. The downside is that the US Polar Fleet is two ships. Uh, <laughs> and I think one of them is actually mothballed at the moment. Um, <laughs> to give you some context, Australia has one ship, which is, even, which, which, which is not, not too bad in the US context. But you, but you can see that you know, Canada and Russia and all the neighbours have much larger fleets. And so... So people have labelled the US as the reluctant Arctic power. So to sort of rectify that, you know, there's been studies that said, you know, the US Coast Guard probably needs six new icebreakers. That's, you know, four, four, five billion dollars. That's not very expensive. You know, if, if, if there's more operational deployments up there, you probably need to upgrade some of the navigation systems. You probably want to invest some money in some shore-based shore -based infrastructure. But, you know, we're looking at, at this happening over the next 30, 50 years. So the annual cost is probably going to be 100, 200 million dollars a year. Right? We're not looking at large, large amounts of money to sort of fill that capability gap. And you know, and I think everyone agrees that there's very likelihood of any sort of serious um, conflict in the foreseeable future in that part of the world. Anyway, regional instability t tends to take a you know a lot more a lot more attention, and, and some estimates say there could be up to 250 million climate refugees by 2050, which is a large number of people. But if you actually think that might happen over the next 30, 40 years, and the fact that many countries like Australia, US, Canada, Britain, we always, we're already taking a large number of migrants anyway, you know, to, to cope with that extra influx of migrants or refugees would basically mean that the OECD countries would probably need to increase their migration intake by about, by about twice, just to double it. Um, Australia and New Zealand could absorb 
all of the population of the Pacific, uh, Pacific Islands by increasing our migration intake by 20% over the next 50 years. So, you know, there's obviously challenges there, but they're not, they're not insurmountable because they won't all turn up on Australia, Australia's doorstep, you know, in one year. They're going to be, you know, very gradual if there are that many climate refugees anyway. Now, food and energy uh, security is obviously an issue, particularly in the developing country, and, that, and that's a region of instability. Uh, the World, World Bank has had a report a couple of years ago that basically said if, if, the, if the OECD countries invest $75 billion a year in targeted adaptation in the third world, that would offset nearly all the bads predicted of climate change over, over the next 50 to 60 years. So that sounds like a lot of money, but it's only 0.2% of the world's GDP. And it really means that you know, OECD countries would need to increase the foreign aid by about 50%. So for the United States, that might be $16 billion a year. Not, not, not a large amount of money. You obviously want to make sure, though, it's targeted to adaptation. And adaptation really means that you actually try to predict the um, lower the impact of hazards. So, you know, shelters, more you know, cyclone or hurricane-resistant housing, levee banks, improved healthcare, you know, all those things. Uh, the third issue is really the vulnerability of military installations. Uh, you know, the United States has a lot of bases in, 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 the, in the US as well as, what well as around, around the world. So they're obviously vulnerable because you know, at any point in time, some climate hazard could, could impact those, such as in the 2004 Hurricane Ivan closed the Naval Air Station at Pensacola for one year. But it's not difficult to climate proof a lot, a lot, a lot of buildings and infrastructure. So they're actually less, less um, vulnerable. Many vulnerable locations are on the coast, so you, it's not overly difficult to relocate some bases maybe further, further, further inland. Um, and relocation and closure of bases is, is, is a constant of US defence policy anyway. I mean, the US um, DOD spends a billion dollars per year on, on relocating and, and closing bases. So it's very much a dynamic environment now. What the climate-proof infrastructure means basically to make it less vulnerable to climate hazards, such, such as strengthening buildings, making you know, levee banks, tornado shelters, you know, all those sorts of physical infrastructure. And uh, some of the work I've been doing is find that the, that the cost is very modest. If you, if, you, if you build it into something that's new, maybe one, one to 3%, it can reduce the vulnerability or the damages by 50 to maybe 80 or 90%. So a small investment now can have you know, large benefits in, in the future. So, so that might increase the, the DOD construction budget at the moment by about, say, 10%. So that's about you know, a billion dollars a year. Again, a lot of, not, not, not a large amount of money. And particularly climate hazards, they come with, with some warning. They're not like an earthquake or tsunami, which can hit you just like that, and you've got zero warning. You know, if, if you know there's a hurricane coming, then you can relocate aircraft and personnel you know, away from the path of the storm. The US military is probably more, more adaptive than most branches of, of the US government. Uh, they have, you know, they have, they have long-term planning. Uh, they're, they're strategic in the decision making, and actually, they're a very multidisciplinary bunch of people. So they probably have more ability to plan ahead for, for climate change than most other branches of government as well. And, and it's such a large budget; they can easily shift resources around as, as need be. Uh, it comes up quite often that there's a concern that the um, U.S. military or, or other military might be engaged or, or diverted to humanitarian uh, missions, and there's been cases where the U.S. has helped out a lot in Hurricane Katrina and 
uh, Haiti and Japan and so on. But most of these, most of these deployments are pretty short, short duration, maybe, maybe a month or two. They're normally only you know, a, few, a, few hundred air, or a few dozen aircraft, maybe, maybe some ships. You know, the US is hardly vulnerable to attack during those periods of time. Right? There's still a large amount of resources that, that are available to deter or prevent any direct threat to the United States. Uh, soft power is important. Uh, one thing the United States doesn't really have is too many hospital ships and, and in, 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 in major disasters, that's probably a need that the, that the local populations need. So to, you know, so to increase the number of hospital ships by two would only cost about $2 billion. Uh, if, if you want to improve the way disasters are, are managed, in, particularly in developing countries, you might want to put, you know, Put a, put, put a bit more funding towards the UN or Doctors Without Borders or some other agency which might relieve some of the load on the US and other countries' military requirements. So if, if, we, if, we, just, if, we, just, if we just add all this up in, in terms of an you know, annual budget, it comes to about $20 billion. Right? That's only 0.5% of, of US government outlays. It's not, not a large amount of money. This is really the worst case. I suspect it will be actually a lot less if these climate predictions prove to be Overblown. So, so the worst case cost is about twenty billion dollars a year. The benefits are probably less tangible. You know, I mean, if you open up the Arctic to, to shipping and everything else, there could be more, more, more resources that could be exploited from from that area. There could be some negatives, but if you just ignore all the benefits, the total cost is still going to be about twenty billion dollars. So, so I suppose that to answer the question, what are climate change impacts on US national security? The answer I would have is that it's manageable. Right? I'm not saying there's no problem and, it, and you may not want to think about it, but it is manageable. Change is, go is going to be gradual and not abrupt. There's plenty of time to, to actually adapt to, to, to the changing climate if, if that actually occurs. And the US is more well placed than nearly any, any other country in the world to, to deal with, with these sorts of uh, uh, threats because it's cause just because it's, its size and it just has many more resources to throw at the problem. Thank you very much. All right, everyone, thank you for having me here. Thank you for coming and thank you for Cato. I really appreciate being asked to come here and give my two, add my two cents to this, this conference. I'm not going to, however, talk about the, I'm not going to analyze the threats the United States faces. I'm going to more talk about and analyze our reaction to the threats that we face. Because it's strange to me, and it's strange maybe to some other people here, that it's so hard to get the message of this conference out. It's so hard to make people believe that they're fundamentally safe, that the threats the United States faces are, are fairly minimal. You would think that would be a welcome notion. You'd think people would be quite happy to hear that they're fundamentally safe, but as, as anyone has tried to convince people uh, of their safety, they run into a wall of pre-existing beliefs. So I'm gonna talk for a little bit about how beliefs affect foreign policy, and in particular, the belief that the world is a fundamentally dangerous place which is widely held in popular and elite circles. And I'll talk a little bit about where that belief comes from and why essentially maybe in the long run there's a reason for optimism about perhaps we can change. Uh, beliefs act differently than just perceptions or ideas. They're tied to our, our identity. They're visceral, not intellectual. 
And they, as such, they're very difficult to change. People don't generally change their religious beliefs, for instance, based upon a review of the evidence or new information comes in. They cling to them because they're a part of who people are. And we have a set of foreign policy beliefs, I would suggest to you, that are as equally central to who we are as a people and as individuals. If you want to understand why an individual acts as he or she does, look at his or her beliefs. And if you want to understand why the United States acts as it does, you should look at the beliefs that are at the root of our foreign policy establishment, our foreign policy debates. There are a few of them. And I just, there's a book coming out this week where I look at a bunch of them. And for those of you turning immediately to your tablets and smartphones and going to Amazon, it's two T's and one S in Fetweiss. <laughs> but I'm just going to look at one of them right now and talk a little bit about the belief, the widespread belief that the world is a dangerous place out there, which is a much more American belief than anyone else. We worry a lot more than the Europeans do, than a lot of our allies do. We think the world is a lot more dangerous than other countries do. And as a result, we end up getting involved in a lot of stupid affairs abroad. We blunder ourselves into Iraq and do various other things because we fear more than others. Why do we fear more than others? We're the safest country in the world in a lot of ways. And yet we fear more than anyone else. And it's, as I said, not just a popular belief. Uh, in recent poll, 2009, 50% of those polled suggest, or 60% thought that the world is more dangerous now than it was during the Cold War. And 50% of the members of the Council on Foreign Relations felt the same way. So it's not just the uneducated rubes who feel this. A lot of our uh, elite foreign policy establishment is convinced it's a dangerous place too. Well, where did that come from? I'm going to suggest a few places for you, a few of the origins of that belief. First, of course, we have the vested interests. When Martin Dempsey, you talked about how much, much more dangerous today than it used to be. He was obviously aware that danger helps his bottom line. As uh, Upton Sinclair once said, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. <laughs> However, it's certainly true, though, that I believe it's true that General Dempsey believes that it's more dangerous today than it ever was. People are compulsive, very efficient rationalizers, and very rarely do we hold beliefs that are contradictory. So he's convinced it's dangerous. And so we also have his allies in the DHS and PACOM and other people who have to continually tout dangers or their reason for being tends to evaporate. But that's not all that's happening. That's not the only genesis of it. Our political system has a, a, a number of actors that push our politics in pathological ways, including those most efficient and uh, prominent entrepreneurs of pathological beliefs, the neoconservatives, which we don't I won't get into them much here. But if you just take a look at some of the titles of neoconservative books over the last few years, Present Dangers, World War IV, Why We Fight, An End to Evil, Most Militant Islam Reaches America, Surrender is Not an Option, and My Favorite, Wild America Sleeps. You'll get the sense that the world out there is we're in a constant struggle against evil, which is what neoconservatives believe to the extent that they influence our policy. It's going to be pathological and marked with fear. Our media doesn't help. I'm not the first person to suggest that the media is, plays a generally unconstructive role in our foreign policy debates. It obviously, if it, in the conventional media, if it bleeds, it leads, is the old saying. But we also have the unconventional media. I don't know how often any of you have an opportunity to listen to Glenn Beck. If you turn that show on, it's like walking into an alternative dystopian reality where you have a giant conspiracy of Islamists and communists who apparently still exist in his mind and union members and George Soros and members of the Obama administration are conspiring to take down America from inside. 
And it's all amusing until you hear the little old lady call up in tears because she's so scared about the future of the country. And he tells her she's right to be scared and she should pray on it. And then you remember that he's the third most listened to radio program in the country and millions of people a week tune in, presumably not just because of the crackpot amusement factor, and you get all depressed. It's a, there is our elements of, in our media establishment that, and, and the alternative media that certainly hype the fear angle as well. I don't think it's insignificant that, the, that America is also the most religious country in the industrialized world and, and the most fearful country. Religious people tend to have a, a greater uh, relationship with evil or an acceptance of evil, of the approach to the world that it sees the more Manichaean, black and white, an acceptance that there's evil actors out there and not just states that are trying to pursue their interests in anarchy. Um, we also, perhaps least considered or least, uh, least uh, intuitive reason we tend to fear more than others is that we're the strongest country in the world. As bizarre as it sounds, there's a relationship between power and threat and fear. Uh, the, the stronger the country is, especially unipolar powers, tend to be the ones that, are, that fear the most. Cicero was quite hap happy to point out a lot that the Romans expanded because they saw frightening neighbors everywhere. And as long as there was a barbarian tribe over the river, they didn't think they were safe. And the British certainly felt the same way in the 19th century. They expanded because they had turbulent frontiers. And fear drove them into places like Afghanistan and Zululand and expanding around partially in large part because they saw threats where no one else died, no one else did. And I think it's partially because we are so strong that we see threats where no one else does. And it's, it's, it's counterintuitive. The strongest country is the safest country. But at the same time, we detect threats where other countries don't. So it has to do somewhat with our very power that makes us scared. And beliefs take a long time to change. Beliefs aren't like a, an imperception that you can win a debate over. It's, I think it's frustrating if you have anyone who's ever tried to convince the, an audience of the general themes of this conference run into immediate blowback where people just don't believe you. They can't, they can't refute your, your stats. You, they can't refute how, how uh, low the levels of violence are in the world that we essentially, by all historical uh, comparisons, live in a golden age of peace and security. But it's a dangerous world out there. You lose the argument because you run into beliefs. They do change, however. This isn't a pessimistic, totally dire, despairing talk. Over time, it's hard for even the most deeply rooted beliefs to survive in the face of sustained assault from reason. Over time, beliefs do change. It doesn't happen like Saul on the road to Damascus, where he has an opinion, an epiphany, and changes his fundamental beliefs. In fact, a lot of psychologists might suggest he might have been kind of a psychotic. Most people, take, it takes a while, and it's gradual and imperceptible, and over t but over time, beliefs do change. And there's also reason for hope, because the younger people, the millennial generation, appears to be much more open to the idea that they may be fundamentally safe. They don't seem to be as worried about the things that worry their elders, like Muslims and immigrants and gay people, as quite as much as the older generations do. So as the old saying, there's an old saying that racism goes away one funeral at a time, so might our fundamental belief that there's it is a dangerous world because the, the, modern, the newer generations don't seem to be as scared as we are. So with that optimistic thought, although it's, it's a, it, this is why conferences like this are important and the publications that come out of them are important. And it's important maybe when you get out, if, we, if you've been convinced by any of this to, or if you're already a fellow traveler, to spread the word a bit because over time, the debate can be won. But thank you.
righty. So I want to first, I want to start off by thanking uh, John Mueller. I would not be here today, actually, because of John. Um, he doesn't know why, but I'll explain. Uh, about five years ago, I think it was, I was at an academic conference in New Orleans, and John was talking on a panel, and he said, you know, we don't really face any serious threats in the world, and the world's very safe. And I said, ah, that's a pretty good argument, actually. I never thought about that. Uh, and so, you know, the, from that, I, I sort of uh, uh, developed sort of this, this idea of the world being safer and sort of writing a lot about it. So I'm sort of indebted to John for making me think about that. Um, also, my, my background is a little bit more in politics uh, than it is in uh, a foreign policy background, but I have a political background. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about sort of the political elements of, of, uh, of threat perception and, and of the domestic inputs into international security. Um, and I got to say, Chris, I'm just glad that, um, that they, the Cato domestic policy folks did not have a veto over who could participate in this particular event. So I think I may have different, slightly different views than some of them here today, but I'll try to uh, get those across. Um, so I'm going to start off from my starting point for this conversation uh, is, is sort of similar to a lot of the arguments you've heard so far today. Um, America's global power you know, is unparalleled and, and our global hegemony is largely uncontested. Um, we don't face any plausible existential security threat. We don't face any near, uh, uh, no great power rival, uh, no near-term military competitor. Uh, we have a vast coterie of allies, friends, like-minded nations. Um, and from a relative standpoint, our, our military, economic, and global influence make us uh, the most powerful country in the world. And at the same time, of course, we face uh, few national, significant national security threats. Um, so. I, from my standpoint, you know, I think this is a fairly widely held view here. You know, America is the most dominant nation in the world, and we're likely going to say that way for the foreseeable future. Um, the questions I tried to address in my paper uh, was sort of asking the question, at a time of diminished global conflict, the time in America is so powerful, um, how relevant are the attributes I just described to U.S. national security? Uh, in a sense, does, does a focus on U.S. dominance um, or international uh, influence uh, that ignores sort of the domestic inputs of national power uh, paints an incomplete picture. In fact, I, I titled my paper, It's Coming from Inside the House, which those of you of a certain generation may remember as a 1970s horror film. Uh, this was a famous commercial uh, babysitter. She gets these phone calls and, and the, calls the police, and the police say, we tapped your phone. The, the calls are coming from inside the house. Um, and so for me, I'm sort of interested in what's happening inside America that affects U.S. national security. And so what I, when I look at that picture, what I see are, are numerous signs of decline um, that affect and that harm our country's economic competitiveness, uh, our productivity, and inevitably uh, our political influence on the global stage. And for me, at least, those key elements are our crumbling infrastructure, our, our underperforming schools, our relatively low levels of technological adoption, our significant public health challenges, um, arrested social mobility, and rising inequality. I'm just talking a little bit about each of those points, just to sort of put a finer point on, on you know, what I'm getting at here. Take education, for example. Okay. Um, the U.S. is basically an average country in how it educates its children uh, among OECD nations. About 12th in reading skills, 17th in science, 25th in math. Um, out of uh, always, uh, wealthier countries, we're 27th out of 29th uh, in the portion of our college students uh, that receive science engineering uh, degrees. And we're one of the few developed countries in the world that's a higher percentage of 55 to 65, 64-year-olds who have a high school education than those who are 25 to 34. And you saw an example of this recently, an OECD survey of Americans that, that, that found that uh, 
Americans pretty much were, were pretty low as far as having basic liter literary and math and technical skills. Um, but what I thought most interesting about the survey was that the, the younger generation actually did worse than older generations, okay, which suggests that we're actually uh, in a situation in which we're raising a generation of young people who are less educationally advantaged than their parents and their grandparents. That's a pretty unusual situation to be occurring. But if you look at the, this most recent OECD survey, it sort of suggests that's what's happening. Um, so that's the, the badness in education. On infrastructure, um, we are among the lower tier of OECD nations as far as our infrastructure quality. Okay? We have a higher traffic rates, more people die on American roads, even though the numbers have gone down pretty significantly. Um, according to the American Society of Civil Engineers, we get a D plus for infrastructure. Um, and that ends up costing hundreds of thousands of jobs and billions of dollars in economic productivity and output. Um, and big part of the problem is we spend less on infrastructure than most other countries, certainly most OECD countries. Um, on healthcare, uh, we've just passed, obviously, uh, and, and implemented um, uh, healthcare reform, but there's still millions of Americans who will not be covered uh, under Obamacare. Um, we're one of the fattest countries in the world. 36% of Americans are overweight. That's double the OECD average. Uh, Two-thirds of adults are overweight or obese, and uh, one-third of children are overweight or obese. Um, we also have extraordinarily high rates of HIV um, uh, infection, of uh, uh, heart disease, lung disease, um, alcohol abuse, and so forth. Um, so that's the bad news there. On science and innovation, we're actually pretty good on that front. Uh, we have a high number, highest number of patents in the world, but we're slipping, and in large measure because we've uh, significantly cut investment in basic science, scientific research. And that's not just happening uh, from the government, it's also happening, it's happening inside the Pentagon too, which has seen significant cuts and continued cuts um, in uh, scientific research, which is one of the comparative advantages our military has. Um, and finally, we have one of the highest rates of income inequality in the developed world. Okay? Um, we have one of the highest child poverty rates, one of the highest po uh, overall poverty rates, one of the highest infant mortality rates, largest prison populations, highest homicide rates, highest rates of death from child abuse and neglect. Um, and those you know, are, are partly a result of income inequality, but just a result of, uh, I would argue, sort of poor social safety net. Compounding all of these challenges is that our political system is, at least today and has been for the past several years, pretty much utterly dysfunctional um, and incapable of dealing with serious national challenges. Uh, and we saw this example recently with the, the debt limit showdown and the, uh, and the government <laughs> shutdown. Um, we not only are dysfunctional as a, as, a, as a government, but we actually are contributing to the malaise uh, of, uh, in the U.S. economy and among Americans, um, particularly with the adoption of austerity politics over the past uh, three years. So um, in my view, all of the things I've mentioned here the imperils the lives of Americans and imperils it in, in, in ways much greater than the threats that we talk about, foreign policy threats. So for example, a country does not provide health insurance for its entire population, basically accepts the idea that millions of its citizens are going to die before they should and will suffer needlessly uh, and will not be able to... Uh, um, contribute to the, the nation's economy. Uh, a country allows its infrastructure to be so deficient, basically accepts the loss of productivity that comes from that. Um, and of course, country that basically doesn't educate its students, uh, in my view, makes a mockery of sort of long-held values in the American social contract, the idea that the route to social mobility is open to every, every citizen. That's no longer really uh, the case the way it used to be. Um, and in, so in my view, all of these stats, when you put it in the context of our larger global security, uh, leads to a re-examination of how we think about uh, 
national security and the nature of the threats facing the United States. Now, I want to be clear, this is not an overly radical argument. The idea that domestic inputs to national power should be a consideration of national security is something that's long been part of conversations on national security. Um, going back to the, to the Eisenhower administration and to the, when this, the, the sort of concept of national security first arrived, it was always seen as a, a larger element than just you know, how many ships are in your Navy, um, you know, the high, highway system an educational system that, and scientific research, all of which was spearheaded by the Eisenhower administration, was all seen as part of a national security um, uh, in a national security frame. Um, and recently I went back and, and that, but that idea has sort of diminished uh, in the years since then. So I looked, for example, at all the national security strategies from Reagan to Obama, and very few of them talk about domestic inputs to national power in anything more than platitudes. Um, the one actually exception, interestingly enough, is the Obama national security strategy which actually makes a direct link between um, education, between uh, uh, green energy, between investments in science and technology, between innovation and American power um, in, in a much more direct way than, than other documents have done. Uh, so just to sort of sum up since I'm, I'm to finish up here, um, what I'm describing here is not really an existential threat to the US, okay? It's not one that will in near term dramatically um, reduce economic growth, it will keep it at a low level, but will not dramatically reduce, and it won't necessarily harm the nation's economic or military or diplomatic power. I mean, we are blessed with a very strong resource base with a, a large consumer market and, and you know, relative political stability-ish. You know, um, you know, for example, how many countries could spend $3 trillion in direct, indirect costs on a disastrous war in Iraq and still not pay, not, not suffer catastrophic economic costs for doing so? Um, however, I, I, my, my argument, my view of this is that discussions of U.S. power that uh, only take into account American global standing in, in, in the world or a relation to other countries um, are sort of missing an important part of the conversation. You know, uh, if, it's, if our students aren't being well-educated, um, if huge disparities exist in technological adoption, if social mobility remains you know, stagnant and out of reach for millions of Americans, um, if the country's healthcare system is poorly functioning, um, if the government is hopelessly gridlocked, unable to deal with serious national challenges, um, it's, it does beg the question, what good is America's global power? Um, particularly at a time when overseas threats to America are so few and far between. And so in my view, I mean, this is sort of the fundamental foreign policy question that we need to be thinking about, not just about our, our relative power to other countries, but what makes, uh, what are the key attributes of our national power and our ability to be uh, um, a competitive, productive, and uh, an effective nation in the, in the years ahead. So I'll leave it at that. I guess I should start off with the usual caveats. I work for RAND in the U.S. Naval Academy. I've got my own bigoted opinions, and those are the ones I suppose you're going to hear today. <laughs> I started about in January writing about the possibilities of an Iranian-based cyber attack and how we'd cope with it and what the indicators and warnings are and how dangerous it could be and all that sort of stuff. Kind of back when Iran was our sworn and eternal enemy, uh, maybe a little dated today, but uh, history will, will tell us whether it is or not. But that's not what I want to talk about. My talk is actually going to be a lot simpler than that. This is a world in which there are a lot of prominent people who worry about a 9-11 in cyberspace. You get it from the FBI, you get it from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, or at least the, the previous one. You get it from the former Secretary of Defense, Leanne Panetta. I'm not really worried about a September 11th in cyberspace. 
But based on what I observe on this town, I'm really more worried about a September 12th in cyberspace. <laughs> what is our leadership going to do the day afterwards? I sort of started getting interested in reactions when I saw something put on by the Bipartisan Policy Center called Cyber Shockwave, if you want to go to YouTube and take a look at this, in which you had former administration officials coping with some imaginary cyber attack and basically going various forms of ballistic, screaming at each other, boy, we really need more authorities. Uh, that doesn't scare you. I don't know what else is going to scare you. Okay. So question we have to ask is, what would be a cyber equivalent of 9-11? What would be the kind of event, in fact, which would cause people to lose their bearings in the strange world of cyberspace, which, frankly speaking, not a whole lot of our leaders really understand very well, although a little better than they used to say 10 and 20 years ago. We're talking about a field in which, despite all the hand-wringing, no one has died in 20 years since I've listen to people worry about that. So if you're going to take a look at the effect of a cyber attack, say by Iran, you're probably taking a look at a loss of money rather than a loss of lives. This would not be the first time that people that we believe are either from Iran or financed by Iran have started playing around with the uh, national civilian infrastructure. For instance, there was a distributed denial of service. I hate to get jargony, but there's no other way to describe it. A flooding attack on the intakes of, of our e-banking system. Uh, got, got in the news a bit. At one point, the percentage of people who could actually electronically access their bank fell to a record low of 95%. That's been since improved a little bit, mostly because the banks went out and got a whole bunch of fiber. Um, they added that to their diet. It wasn't free. It was about a few hundred million dollars in prophylactic... Um, expenditures, and they're pretty much in much better shape. Uh, we also believe that Iranians trashed about 30,000 computers belonging to the Saudi Arabian oil company, uh, figure roughly $50 million worth of damage, more or less, and everybody gets a shiny new computer, okay? Could they hit the billion-dollar mark? Possibly $10 billion mark. That's a lot, uh, that's a lot more difficult. But there's a tendency sometimes in cyberspace to believe that we're dealing with this enormous iceberg. Well, that's what you see. But in fact, there's a huge conspiracy of silence of people who have been badly hacked and their intellectual property got on a plane and is now you know, de-embarking in Shanghai, which nobody ever talks about because they're all really, really embarrassed. So you know, this is what you see in the newspapers and then according to a lot of cybersecurity aficionados, this is ginormous iceberg that you don't see. So maybe it'll be like a 9-11, only you don't show anything on television, and it really was a lot worse. And there'll be a lot of people whispering in Capitol Hill saying, I've got these classified sources that say, it was a lot worse than you think. So, okay, what could we do in terms of panic? Um, divide into two categories, domestic and international. Um, domestic. There are at least one agency which will go unnamed, which would dearly love to intercept all the communications that we all get over the internet, uh, to of course look for malware and other things, um, and other things, because the implementing legislation for that CISPA, which fortunately hasn't been passed thanks to the good work of Edward Snowden in this case, but you know, after 9-12, maybe raised again. Uh, basically allows them to also take a look for crimes, uh, threats against property, threats against people, child pornography, 
and a few of the things that they may or may not tell you about in that, okay? Well, let's think a bit. Let's get rid of that mythical agency. Let's talk about DHS, a much kinder, gentler version, right? Imagine a DHS firewall around the entire internet. Not a bad idea, wouldn't you say? You know, cast out malware and all that sort of stuff. Well, DHS spends about $400 million just protecting the 2% of the information infrastructure that represents the .gov domain. Multiplied by 50, and you're talking about $20 billion a year for a system that won't catch, um, sorry for the jargon, zero-day attacks, won't catch any attack that comes in on hardware, won't get any insiders, and won't get any attack that comes over encrypted media, such as your shopping channels. So it's a lot of money, not a whole lot of uh, effort, not, I mean, not a whole lot of success. Um, we might just not buy foreign equipment. We're well on our way there, having uh, gone after Huawei, and I'm hearing intimations we may now go after Lenovo, because after all, they're foreign, and you, know, you can't trust those guys very much. Um, there is a notion that we ought to have everybody educated and licensed to use the internet. Um, yeah, don't tell that one to your mother. <laughs> and hard authentication. Those are the easy ones. Then I actually worry more about international because the usual notion is, hold it, this is an act of war, right? We go through international legal gobbledygook, this is an act of war, and therefore, if we are going to have a credible response, we must also respond with acts of war. That's not a bad idea. It's a traditional idea, right? We made threats that we couldn't back up, so we have to go to war to back up our threats we couldn't back up. Otherwise, nobody's going to believe any other future threats that we make that we can't possibly back up. It does raise the question, however, is starting a war necessarily the most cost-effective way of making sure that our computers are secure? What are having the good old-fashioned disciplines like engineering and economics and things of that nature? Or going to the folks who make our computers and say, could you pay a little more attention to security? Well, this is Washington, D.C., after all. I used to say 15 years ago that most of the consequential decisions made about information security were made in the state of Washington and not the city of Washington. The state of Washington is where Microsoft is headquartered, and I wouldn't really change my mind today, although I'd probably throw in a little more Silicon Valley, okay? Um, something else you have to consider about are the people that were really, think, carried out the attack, the guys who carried out the attack. Remember, this is cyberspace. This is an area in which there's no fingerprints, there's no powder residue, there's none of that sort of stuff, and we're dependent on computer forensics, and we're dependent on intelligence. And the one thing I can tell you about intelligence is I can't tell you about intelligence, right? Remember this whole business about Syrian chemicals? The president went to Congress and said, here's my proof that it was Syria. The proof was classified. And then the congressman who saw that said, this is it? Which means there must have been even more classified stuff underneath. Plus there were the Russians who could have probably literally put their nose on the stuff and say, who? The Syrians? So between those two, I don't think you're going to get a very energetic attempt to prove who's carried out any particular attack, which is pretty convenient if you have your own prejudices on the topic and somebody richly deserves to be counterattacked and returned. And furthermore, in case that isn't scary enough, there are presidential decisions that basically say, in an emergency, we will delegate our powers to go to war down and down and down the military command chain until it gets to somebody who lives on the network all the time. 
And I probably don't have to tell you what that means in terms of the calm decision to respond to an impending cyber attack. Well, that doesn't really mean half as much as when I hear quotes from like the Defense Science Board basically saying, we could have a cyber attack that would merit a nuclear response. When I, and it's not just American. When I hear the Chinese saying that a cyber attack could be as bad as a nuclear war, and when I hear Vladimir Putin, who's the head of a country that lost 25 million people in World War II, say it could be worse than a conventional operation. So it's not the cyber attack I worry about. There are basically two folks I worry about. The folks who don't know anything about cyberspace and the folks who do know about cyberspace and realize the rest of us don't know very much about cyberspace. And on that, I stand down. <laughs> Neglected to introduce our discussant, Trevor Thrall from uh, George Mason. Thank you, John. Thank you, Cato, for having me. It's a fantastic conference. Um, I'm honored also to read these fantastic papers. Extremely thought-provoking. Glad to have been on the grab bag panel. I wish I'd heard the complexity uncertainty paper, though. That sounded really good. Um, I'm going to go in a slightly different order from concrete topics to less concrete, if you don't mind. I'll start with uh, Mark Stewart's um, excellent paper on climate change. And I think I, I tried to play devil's advocate, but I, I had a very hard time with this paper because I think it's exactly the kind of level-headed analysis people should be doing about all sorts of threats, but maybe especially climate change and security. Take the claims or the worst-case scenarios and just subject them to objective and rigorous analysis, find out what's real and, and what's baloney. And I think in this case, he does exactly uh, what threat inflators and climate change promoters really hate. Um, which is um, to actually look not just at the bad things that are going to happen, but to look also at the likely and necessary responses and adjustments, and then just do some simple cost-benefit analysis. And, um, you know, I think the warming of the planet, if the worst cases come to pass, will be terrible. We'll all be sad. Um, but it does not follow that society is just going to stand still and take it on the chin. Uh, between now and then, governments and militaries plan, Economies reallocate resources, and individual citizens work, of course, to adapt to their situations. And I think, just to stop for one second, this is a theme that I've heard now consistently all day, that um, we have to think about not just the bad things that we imagine are coming, but also the sort of inevitable responses from society to them. Um, now, there's no easy way to predict exactly where we're going to end up with the climate uh, and the climate change, but I really do think that he's got the right approach. Um, and I for that obvious reason, then I really agree more or less with his conclusions for nations like the United States um, that enjoy friendly neighborhoods. Thanks, Fish. Thanks, Canada. Um, you know, I think we have the economic resilience and whatnot to handle the gradual adaptations required by climate change, and I don't see any real reason to sound a big alarm. I think what um, Mark says is exactly right. We're going to pay a perpetual climate change tax, essentially. Um, where severe conditions raise the cost of doing certain missions, maybe make certain missions somewhat more likely, but really it doesn't, to me, seem obvious that it's going to go beyond that. Um, I think people have, and, and you could maybe in a chapter go into some of the more fanciful um, worst case scenarios involving bad things happening in one place or another, leading to the U.S. getting drawn into something that it wouldn't have absent climate change, but I think, frankly, those end up pretty fanciful. I, I guess the one thing I might... Uh, point out another theme that, um, that our own uh, overreactions may be the worst uh, threat we face. Um, what about a failed state that, that fails because of climate change? Um, we're already drawn in potentially in Somalia and Yemen, other places that um, you know, didn't fail because of climate change, but maybe that's a path 
Um, I, that's the best I can do. Sorry. I tried try to push back, but I just, I just can't find much else. I did my best. Um, okay, let me now turn to uh, Mark Lubicki's um, excellent and provocative thoughts on cyber attacks. Um, I, I think if I read it right, you, you find the, the threat of cyber attacks somewhat uh, larger probably than, than the climate change threat appears. Um, but your bigger concern is the overreaction, not the threat uh, or the attack itself. And I, I really liked the way that the paper was organized around sort of a concrete scenario. What happens the day after uh, Iran or someone like that attacks? Uh, I think you could actually play up the 912 concept even more in the chapter. I really liked that. Um, and, but I think the, the other thing I would like to sort of hear you say more about um, is just how big a threat the threats actually are. I, I, I now have heard and I'm terrified about the threat from our overreaction. But what, what actually is the threat from these attacks? And, and it is difficult to say. I appreciate a lot of this is classified and so on. But as a very uninformed outsider to that specific debate, it appears, at least on the surface to me, to have a lot in common with the climate change threat. Um, most of the literature focuses on negative trends, worst case scenarios, what if that happened, what if this happened. Um, but just as with the climate issue, all of society is busily adapting to the new world that has been created by the internet, our increasing interdependence, our increasing vulnerability, our privacy concerns. And I think as societies and people and governments learn more about what you need to do to be safe and secure, um, it will be more and more difficult for an attack, a, a meaningful cyber attack to be carried out uh, by an individual or by a small group or really eventually anyone less than a nation state. Um, and on top of that, I think you know, it's pretty clear the US enjoys just, again, as it does with climate change, a pretty formidable set of advantages. Other nations may be getting pretty good at it, but I think we're better. Um, and not to mention that, but if things go too far, we do have the world's most terrifying military. And so it's hard for me to foresee a lot of scenarios in which some kind of all-out attack occurs uh, on the US grid or something like that. I, I just don't see how that would make sense for someone to do. I mean, yes, attribution can be difficult, but who would be 100% certain we would never find out or that we would wait to find out? And I think that, however, whatever percentage that is, is big enough to make people uh, think more than twice. I mean, look at what the US did after 9-11, the first 9-11. I don't think I would want to be the one doing the second one. So I may be wildly wrong here, but in the end, I think with the cyber threat, like the climate threat, we'll, we'll, have, we'll be paying a perpetual tax uh, in the form of antivirus software and system administrators and all those sorts of things, but I don't really foresee a cataclysmic worst-case scenario. Um, all right, let me turn to Michael Cohen's uh, piece, Inside the House. Um, and this really strikes, I think, at the heart of what's been a major debate since the end of the Cold War, and that is what exactly is national security when you're the only superpower left standing um, and there's nothing left to threaten you? And he finds the answer in sort of a foundational um, concept of national power. It's, it's the economy and the educated people, uh, the science and technology system that, that got us here, but it's in decline and that's what we should carry about, uh, care about the most. And I think from one vantage point, there's really nothing to argue about here. No one disagrees that a nation's power uh, stems from the wellspring of a vibrant economy and all that stuff. And nobody, I don't think, disagrees that a healthier economy and better schools, uh, kids who could read a little better, I know I wish mine could, my students in college could, um, all that would be an unalloyed benefit for the United States, both directly you know, in and of themselves, but also indirectly as insurance um, for our ability to remain powerful enough uh, to protect our interests. Um, but having said that, I think you know, one can challenge Cohen's uh, policy prescription on a couple of fronts. Um, first, from a, national, a narrow national power and national security perspective, I think it's actually overly alarmist. 
Um, none of the national challenges, he notes, are, are a good thing. And, and to be fair, he, he said these are not existential, but I think, I think he does try a little hard to make them tell a dangerous story. And I'll just take the education side of things here. Uh, because people have been um, complaining about the death of the U.S. education system for as long as I can remember, certainly since the 80s and the Japanese were better at math than we were and so on and so forth. And ever since then, this inability to do math and science in particular was supposed to have killed us. Um, but uh, it didn't. didn't knock us off our perch. Japan ended up with their own problems despite being very good at math. And despite China's sustained support uh, for lots of science and new scientists and new universities, um, the U.S. still accounts for about 30 percent. 30 percent. One country. 30 percent of the world's published scientific material. About five times as much as China. Um, and oh yeah, since the 80s, we managed to invent the internet, sequence the human genome, and do a whole lot of other cool things, lots of it with lasers, um, that, you know, supposedly our kids were too stupid to read and write, and I'm not sure how we did that, right? Second piece of that is I'm not sure how closely connected to national security some of these things actually are. Um, they may have very distant relationship, but not very proximate, I don't think. Um, so presumably there's a floor beneath which your society is too dumb to manage an economy, and it will simply slide into uh, ruin, um, but I can't imagine the U.S. falling beneath that floor. So to put this in more concrete terms, consider that on the eve of World War I, almost 8% of the United States could not read. Um, but we did okay. Um, by World War II, about 3% of the country still couldn't read. Uh, undoubtedly a much worse figure than in Germany and most of the European continent. But again, we managed to find a way. And today, when only 1% of our folks cannot read, the U.S. national reading capability still lags far behind nations such as Andorra, Finland, Liechtenstein, Luxembourg, Norway, and Vatican City, where I hear they also read Latin. Uh, so I, I take the U.S.'s relative education ranking um, not that seriously uh, as a national security issue. And I think we could do something of the same, maybe with less snark and facetiousness, uh, on the other issues. But I think the general point here that I'd like to make is that, first, um, over the longer term view, the U.S. is actually doing better than it used to. It's just what you mean by used to. Um, and I think, I didn't even know about Cato's awesome new humanprogress.org website, which I think makes the same basic case, but now I do, um, and I would have cited it. Um, I think the second thing is that the U.S., despite decline, um, and I won't argue the decline uh, in a certain sense, um, that we still enjoy an abundance of prosperity, and finally, that we don't need nearly as much national power as we actually have to be entirely safe. Again, thank you, Fish, and thank you, nuclear weapons. Um, now, I think maybe the more serious front on which I would challenge his assessment or policy prescription is actually the desirability of moving the entire debate about these things into a national security framework. Um, why would you do this, right? And I think, if, I, if I'm reading him right, and I may be wrong, um, what I think he might be trying to do is to find a trump card that can cut through all the political BS surrounding these issues so that we could finally make some progress, which has been very difficult thanks to all the gridlock and whatnot. And I can utterly, totally sympathize with the urge to try such a strategy, but I don't think it would work. Um, I really don't think making a national security issue out of healthcare, for example, uh, will get us very far. Um, you know, is the investment, I mean, is the strategy really that simple? We just need to invest more in highways, invest more in trains, invest more in the healthcare system, and this will somehow magically make not only our economy and country stronger, but also our, our uh, national security better? I don't, I don't think so. I don't, that doesn't seem obvious to me. Um, you know, even if we agreed healthcare was a pressing national security issue, that doesn't tell us which policies to adopt. And I'm afraid we'd just argue about those the same way we do now. Um, and moreover, I don't think that making a security issue out of domestic political issues is actually very healthy for the military and foreign policy crowd. 
Um, I think their business is actually an important one as it currently stands, and that is to keep us safe from actual immediate threats, um, you know, and to help the U.S. pursue its current, you know, interests in the in the world. And I think getting too caught up in domestic issues, fights over health care or economic policy and stuff like that, would just distract us from the stuff we probably shouldn't be distracted from. And so I'm not saying that people who are pushing for a better education system or whatnot couldn't invoke national security, at least as a kind of a tertiary or whatever sort of benefit, but it should be education folks leading that charge, it seems to be, not foreign policy folks. And so I, I think maybe in some I would suggest potentially repositioning this argument as kind of a domestic component to the come home America uh, theme. It's the economy, stupid. Nation building begins at home and, and so on. And you know, I have no problem with someone saying we should put domestic concerns before foreign policy concerns. And I think most Americans do that without thinking. Um, but I don't think we should try to conflate uh, security policy and domestic policy. All right, and finally, turning to Chris Fetweiss's paper, um, I think Chris is on the right track with his argument both about the sort of the general nature of beliefs and their, and their power. Um, and I think it really provides a potential theoretical backbone for a lot of today's discussion. How is it that we can be so big and powerful and yet so scared of so many things? Um, and I really appreciate his historically informed and social psychological argument about where all this stuff comes from. I won't sort of go back through that. Um, but I want to raise just a few questions about his approach. Too late for the book, I get that. Um, but maybe for something you write in the future. Um, and, and part of that is what exactly is the empirical basis that identifies and justifies these particular beliefs as the ones doing the work? And, and how do they lead in turn to specific policy positions or attitudes on the part of the American public? And I think this is important. And again, I don't have the benefit of the book, and you've probably discussed this. But um, there's been a good deal of previous work, of course, on foreign policy beliefs and opinions that have looked at other dimensions uh, that have been pretty useful for understanding what people think about national security. So I'm thinking of Eugene Whitkoff's work, Faces of Internationalism, but we could also just use partisan identification. We could also just think simply, um, as Dr. Mueller did, about pox and doves. Um, those are pretty useful, and how does this do something different from those is something I would like to hear a bit more on. And, and I understand your focus on the geopolitical fear, and you framed it sort of accordingly, but I don't think we want to flatten the attitudinal landscape too much. I think there are Americans who don't actually have that fear, who don't think we should adopt aggressive policies. And I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about where you think that lack of fear comes from. Because if it's important to know where the fear came from, it'd be interesting to know where the not fear came from. And that sort of raises my second question, which is um, to push you out a little bit more on how people come to hold these beliefs in the first place. And I, I like the historical piece, but I, I'm kind of more of a social psych person. And I'm not sure that most people, you know, and I think you'd agree with at least part of this, come to their attitudes and beliefs through facts much at all. And I, I'm a, I have a very dim view of the marketplace of ideas, I'm sorry to say. Um, and I think a lot of recent work um, on these sorts of questions has identified, on the one hand, moral values. Um, George Lakoff's work, for example, on the one hand, suggesting that people's worldviews and thus their foreign policy beliefs are, are really shaped you know, through socialization in the family well before the marketplace of ideas gets hold of them. Um, or other um, research which shows that affect, affective emotional considerations are really, really important in these sorts of things, suggesting that group identity and emotion rather than facts play important roles. And I think the extent to which either of these two, moral values or affect, plays a major role in shaping the fear or the uh, beliefs about the U.S. role, 
um, then your, your hopes and dreams for the improvement in the marketplace over time may need some revision. I, I'm much more dour about that than you are. Um, I think you acknowledge that this is going to be difficult and take time for sure, but, but you argue that the onslaught of evidence and reason can eventually do the job, and I, I just have to respectfully disagree. I mean, let's face it, not every religion in the world can be right, and yet some of them have been puttering around for hundreds and thousands of years in the face of a lot of um, disconfirming evidence. I mean, I think that's especially true to the extent where these beliefs have moral and affective components. It's just going to be very difficult to undo those sorts of things. Um, so at any rate, that's good. I'd love to hear discussion. Thanks, guys. Okay, yeah, about a half hour for discussion. Anybody want to chime in in terms of uh, immediate things? Okay, we'll open it up to the floor, so far as I can see anybody out there. Just down, right down in the front here. Thanks. Um, Robert Schrader with International Investor. There's very light mention so far uh, through the day and, and even in this panel with the economic forces and interests that are supporting some of this uh, decision making. And I just wondered if I could uh, ask for any, any further comments, uh, especially when it, in regard to not just defense, but intelligence, when we know that there is uh, some strong connections with the private sector and the private sector could obviously have their own biases and that could force its way up the decision-making pathways so that some of the information could be corrupted where the final authorities have to make decisions. So I, I wonder, and, and just to a corollary to that, whether we would see more, whether there's more going on in the way of offensive nature in the cyber world, for example, than there is in defensive nature that we would never even know about, but continues to elicit counter responses and therefore exasperates and, and exaggerates the entire, the entire problem. Is my question clear? You, you seem to be uh, tormented by it. I don't know if torment is necessarily the right word. <laughs> um, a lot more money is spent on defense than offense. Part of the problem is you put your finger on it is that if somebody goes into your organization and robs your files, you may be the, none the wiser. It is estimated that for what's called an advanced persistent threat, that you don't discover it until about a year after it's taken place. And in a large amount of times, it's not you who's discovering it, but somebody on the outside who's finding your information in places they didn't expect that comes in and tells you about it. Okay. Um, that is a serious problem for organizations. Organizations really have to take a sort of a cost-benefit approach as to how much they want to restrict their internal information flow in order to protect their external information flow. Okay, I answered a question, but I'm not certain that the question I answered was the one you asked. <laughs> was whether our agencies are initiating a lot more offensive conduct. Uh-huh that is uh, causing more, of course, counter-response, therefore perpetuating the entire problem. Oh, I don't think, I mean, this comes under the categories of birds got to fly, bees got to buzz, and intelligence agencies collect information. Um, most people, even bef before the, the, the summer's revelations, assumed that the NSA was, was an active intelligence organization collecting lots of information. This sort of confirms it in a lot of interesting little details, but it doesn't really change 
the, it really doesn't change the underlying opinion. Okay. Do other people spy on them because we spy on us? I doubt it. I think if we stopped spying, we'd still get spied on. There's almost, in terms of cyber attacks, there's almost none. Maybe I can address the economics bit real quickly, because uh, uh, there are some companies that do, there's some market interest in trying to spread fear. Glenn Beck peddles food insurance on a regular basis, and Stephen Colbert once said, nothing moves product like the hot stink of fear. But there are, there are other economic elements, and especially in the financial markets, that don't necessarily benefit from from fear and from anxiety, the financial markets like calmness. I think Colin Powell might have been the first one to say money's a coward and it flees instability. So it's not the case that the American business is behind hyping threats uniformly. Uh, leaving out, of course, the insurance business. Insurance, yeah, yeah, right. Okay. Other <laughs> yeah. questions? Put it on the aisle there. Some are chatted to you. Um, uh, now, since this is the last uh, panel on all the miscellaneous threats that we can all dream up, and I, uh, I think, uh, I thought uh, uh, Mr. Cohn would discuss it when he said the enemy is within, but uh, uh, my concern is that after, at the end of the Second World War, the United States was the only surviving major power which had not taken much of a loss. and Therefore, it was the most predominant force in the world and had shaped the world in its image all these years, even probably up to this, because there hasn't been another power almost. Soviet Union came reasonably close as a deterrence to American oppression or American, uh, you know, creating of dangerous world around the world. Um, but uh, it, that too also slipped away. So given that uh, America has shaped the world, if it is really a dangerous world, I do think American policy and American behavior had a lot to do. However, uh, Mr. Fetwise said it is not a dangerous world. Maybe if he's right, then American policy has been working, but I don't think so. I think that America has always overreacted with violence, and to me, uh, if the leader, which is kind of, which provides the leadership to the world, behaves like a super terrorist, I think American behavior in most of the situation, including Iraq war, you know, uh, Afghanistan war, and all the way, even the recent uh, uh, diktat from Barack Obama saying he's going to bomb Syria. Uh, they're already killing each other. The whole country is in turmoil. Here goes the president of the most powerful country. He's going to again start bombing that place to kill more people. Given that kind of a violent behavior by a leader of the world, it seems to me the policy is to create a more tur turbulent and dangerous world. And so given that, I didn't see anybody addressing that particular issue. Uh, I, I'll... <laughs> Jump in a little bit. Uh, it's, it's not true that the United States has an unblemished record for massive overreaction. Um, it did got out of Somalia after 241 Marines were killed and basically just left. The same uh, out of uh, Lebanon, rather, and the same out of Somalia. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily work that way. But I certainly agree that a lot of its policies have been monumentally counterproductive. For example, in Pakistan now, for several years, 
When you ask the Pakistanis who's the greatest enemy of Pakistan, the answer comes back, the United States. Uh, so that's, you know, a monumental, a, a foreign policy development of monumental proportions, it seems to me. Um, it, it really hyper counterproductive. Anyway, anybody else want to chime in on? Michael. I mean, I, I would have a sort of different point of view that um, much of why the world is safe today is because of, um, of U.S. diplomacy and, and, and sort of U.S. construction, if you will, of the post-war international system. Um, and I think of international law, international norms that the U.S. has upheld at various points and violated also at various points, but um, has actually helped create uh, – uh, the framework that is led to a safer and, and, and world. And so in a sense, you know, as much as the U.S. is a violator of occasionally of those rules and norms, uh, that system that they've created has endured. And in many ways, after the end of the Cold War, ended up uh, you know, being an important framework for important, uh, putting in place, uh, improving international peace and security. The U.N. certainly played an important role in that. Um, and a whole host of international institutions have played an important role, whether it's, you know, the WTO, whether it's uh, the WHO, whether it's a whole sense of, the, of UN organizations. So, I mean, it's it's not a it's not a, an either or kind of a conversation. There are things the US has done that has been very destructive, obviously. But I think, by and large, US diplomacy has has been rather positive when it comes to creating a, safe, a safer world. It, it'd be a safer world if we fought fewer stupid wars. But you know, I mean, that's that's a whole other conversation. No, we're sure it's not. No, we're sure it's not. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to chime in on something fairly quickly here. One over here, if you want to. Oh. No, go ahead. Go ahead oh, sorry. There, in many ways, the most important here. event of the last 25 years after the Cold War ended was one that did not take place, which is to say the other major countries of the world did not bandwagon against the United States when it was fairly clear that the United States was basically the unipolar, uh, the unipolar power. From a world historical perspective, that is fairly unprecedented. And it suggests that whereas they would each rather be the world's unipolar power, that the, having the United States in that position was not as bad as some of the alternatives. Yeah, you can see the, the buildup of Europe and of Japan as being a monumental case of uh, enlightened self-interest on the part of the United States. Yes, sir. Uh, Charles Hedinger. Um, I agree that our probably our, our greatest challenges are internal rather than threats from the outside. But... The threat that I have a big concern with is the continuing encroachment of our government uh, trying to do things that are more appropriately addressed by the private sector. And that's a trend that, if it continues, I think really poses a threat to our economic success and our ability to sustain our, our role in the world. I'd like to just get some reaction to, to that concern. Well, I mean, I wouldn't come as a huge surprise that I... I very much disagree. Um, in fact, I think that the greatest <laughs> contribution to um, uh, to the decline that I pointed to in my paper is the lack of government involvement in, in healthcare and education, infrastructure, and so forth. So, you know, that's my view of it. Others disagree, obviously. Um, but I look at the investments, for example, that were made uh, in the 1950s by, uh, you know, during the Eisenhower administration as one example of national highway safety, national highway system um, significant investments in, uh, in higher education and scientific research, all of which have, I think, I think in my view, laid the, pr the groundwork for pr the primacy that the U.S. enjoyed uh, through much of the 20th century. And I look at other major government programs that came about in the 1960s also uh, having contributed significantly to U.S. economic growth, to, um, to health uh, outcomes, and so forth. So, you know, this is 
part of the problem, and this, Trevor uh, made this point, this is part of the problem with talking about domestic issues is you get involved in these kind of debates about role of government or not role of government. Um, but, you know, my view of it is that the U.S. government has basically abdicated its responsibilities when it comes to providing for uh, its citizens, and that's what's led to the decline that I, I talked about. Sure. Uh, briefly, yes, I don't you're sort of speaking for Cato here, right? The <laughs> that you're talking about, Mr. Cohen, has been tried in many other places, and it's uniformly not been effective in terms of the overall strength of the nations that have tried to follow it. Uh, and I would suggest that that's demonstrable, um, and that the latest adventure into healthcare and the disaster that it's already proving to be is exhibit A of why this is a, an incorrect approach. I mean, sir, do you think that the healthcare system as it was before was operating in a way that was uh, beneficial to the American people? It, it seemed to please most of the American people. Really? Did, okay, I, you know, this is, a, this, is a, this is, a, this is a, a, a digression, I suppose, from the conversation at hand. I, I would disagree with that pretty strongly. Um, I'd say if you were uninsured, you almost certainly disagree with it. As someone who buys individual insurance, I would definitely disagree with it. Um, but I, I think that, you know, we've seen repeatedly in this country that when the, you know, this stimulus actually is a good example, by the way, of, of, of this, this phenomenon, the stimulus provided not just significant amounts of growth and jobs, but actually helped, you know, spur a number of important industries, innovative industries and in clean energy and, and, tra and infrastructure uh, support, transportation and so forth. So, you know, I just, this is a disagreement, I suppose. I think in general, countries that invest significantly in the domestic economy, uh, invest in these attributes of national power, end up being much more successful than countries that allow the free market to do it, because uh, generally the free market doesn't do things like provide health care or good education. So. I think you just made my case. Okay, right. I think we laid out the disagreement. Where I think so. that yeah. go. <laughs> Okay, other questions? Yeah, down here in front. My name is Stephen Shore. On this evaluation of danger is there is it at all possible to come up with any objective measure that is applicable across time and nations could anyone honestly say that we are like 12 percent less the world is 12 percent less dangerous than it was in 1985 or 13.5 percent more dangerous is there any objective way of evaluating this well it depends on what uh, what Criteria you want to look at. Some of them are quite quantifiable. There's three times, almost three times as many people on the earth now than there was during World War II, but there's much less warfare, much less violence. Uh, Steven Pinker and John Mueller have big books trying to, that have compiled evidence. Can you say they're 12% safer? I don't know. But there are ways to, I think, make very convincing cases, except for those who have the wall of belief that they just don't accept it, uh, that mathematically we're safer than than is at least widely perceived. If I can follow that point, you, when you have this conversation with people, nobody ever really says the world's more dangerous than it was. I mean, people, some people do, I suppose, but generally when I find debates about this, people will say, okay, so fine, it's safer now, but it's not gonna stay that way, right? It's, it's, this is history. History always goes in these cycles, so you know, it got safer now, now it's gonna get, it's get more dangerous as we go forward. Um, I find those arguments kind of speech, you know, spurious because they don't actually, they're not based on the evidence. They're sort of this argument about uncertainty and and uh, you know, complexity in the global system means that we're going to have more violence or more warfare down the road. I mean, I, I think both Chris and I could point to plenty of reasons to believe that, in fact, the current period of global peace and stability is one that will continue for a very long time in large measure because you, know, you have more democracies, you have more economic integration, you've got large levels of prosperity. I mean, there's not, ju not just a coincidence that war has declined so much dramatically in the past uh, 25 years. Paul? Yeah. Paul Pillar, my 
Our question is for Mark Stewart. The subject of your presentation was the impact of climate change on the U.S. military and even more specifically on expenditures that might be expected of the U.S. military in response to certain developments and contingencies. But at least one point in your slides, you seem to equate all of this to the impact on U.S. national security. Uh, did you mean to make that equation? And if so, and while bearing in mind uh, Trevor Thrall's admonitions about the dangers of expanding too much the concept of national security, uh, can one not argue in response that the direct physical effects of a phenomenon that goes well beyond our borders on the United States, <clears throat> on uh, U.S. citizens, on the U.S. economy, on the U.S. homeland is uh, appropriately viewed as national security, whether the particular manifestations take the form of uh, destruction of forests through pine beetles or uh, effects on crop yields through drought or putting up with uh, cyclonic tropical storms, whether or not the U.S. military has built storm shelters to make them get through it. Um, yeah, well, see, well, my background is engineering, not in, not in national security. So uh, some of the nuances might be, I'm, I might, I might miss, miss some of them. But um, the, the issue is, though, is, is that many governments seem to link climate change to, 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 to their own national security because the, there is uncertainty. Uh, the hazards do seem to be large if, if the impacts prove to be correct. I find there's not much much of a link between it, and that's why I believe that the any impact is purely manageable. Now, whether you want to label it as net, as national security or improving national resilience um, to natural disasters, it's not a big issue for me, as so I speak. It's an issue for governments, I suppose, as to where they get the money from. You know, which which bucket of money it comes out of. But it's something which is something which is entirely manageable. Right? and the impact will be very slow to come. So there'd be lots of warning as to what, what action you should be taking. And, and you were focusing more uh, as well on international security in the sense of helping with foreign aid and so forth if for places overseas. Okay, other questions? Yes, sir, down in the middle here. We get... uh, Dr. Curtis, U.S. Naval Academy. I'm, I'm curious when, when we address this question, uh, would it not be important to specify to whom that question is being addressed, whether it's an American or, or a Somalian or um, um, someone in, in Tunisia? Wouldn't your answer depend on, I mean, in the data, would it not depend to some, some extent on whom the question is directed at? Because I feel perfectly secure. But I'm not sure someone in, in Mogadishu would feel that way. I, I, it's funny you say that. I, thank you for the question. I just, got, I just got done with a paper about uh, African security. And there's less conflict and violence in Africa now than ever before, for, at least in recorded history and probably ever, especially as a, as a percentage of population. And it, around the world, the, the phenomenon is, is not uniform, but it's quite common. Europe's most, it's, it's most peaceful. Uh, it's, it's at its most peaceful. There's no conflict in South America, simmering in Colombia a bit, but not much. It's almost, it, by the percentage of the human population, more people live at peace and societies at peace than ever before. 
So it doesn't much matter where you live. Now, Somalia is an exception, but there's always been some exceptions. It's better for everybody and not just us. One point. There's a great, there's a report by the human, UNDP, UN Development Project, Human Development Report, and they do a human development index, uh, which is life expectancy, um, education, I think healthcare access. And according to the most recent report that they did, every single country in the world over the past 10 years showed progress on the human development index. Every country. Uh, that's an extraordinary, to me, extraordinary example of, of the improvements you've seen in national development in the past 20 years or so. If you think about 30 years ago, half the, half the world lived in dollar, less than a dollar and a quarter a day. Today, it's about 15%. So if you think about it from a human security standpoint, I mean, you know, putting aside wars and such, there's no question that people live much better lives than they lived even a generation ago. Um, Janice Grenadier, um, on the health care, I just want to make one point on that. We have 2,000 pages that we have Congress that never read it and voted on it. They wanted it voted on and done instead of doing it right. So we really can't totally 100% defend depend on our government to do what's right. Um, I don't think any other um, business would allow that. And in the technology that we have... We are one of the greatest countries, and we have a lot of entrepreneurs that have come up with different options. We have one where they've, I believe they're using it in um, for the military, where they can tunnel in. When you sign in to anything you do, you kind of like tunnel into it, into the Internet, and no one can, can break your, your tunnel. And when... We started with technology and the Internet, and we all had email addresses. We paid $30 a month for an email address. Now we want everything for free. But if for $30 we could maybe use the entrepreneurial skills that are out there to bring it to the table where it becomes affordable to everybody, to every person instead of just the government and the military who can afford that type of uh, um, system. But if we could bring it to the public... And we could have our own privacy tunnel that when we're on the Internet, we're, we're protected. And then when we sign off, we're off and no one else can see what we've done. We have that now, but we don't have it and haven't invested in it to make it affordable for me or anyone here, really, from what I understand. Okay, maybe one comment. Okay, thanks for the comment. Other, other questions? Actually, a couple of quick comments um, and questions on um, uh, Dr. Fetweiss. Fetweiss. Um, the issue of, I'm just curious about this, um, the elites see the world as dangerous, and I think, I wonder, and, and I just want to get your reaction to this, they do because America is, for whatever good, bad, or ill, we are a global power. We have both forces and interests, interests all over the world. For instance, if you're a Dane, the world is pretty safe. But, you know, maybe even if you're a Finn, unless you work for Nakia, then you're worried about your job. Um, but, you know, so the, the elite, at least, the, the policy elite, see the world in a different way. And Dempsey, you know, we've, they, they mentioned poor Martin Dempsey a couple of times. I mean, he's seen his soldiers die. So, I mean, you know, his view is not necessarily uh, everybody else's view. And so I wonder if that's at least part of it, at least from the point of view of the elite. Um, and also, the other issue is that you raised, and I'm wondering, on, on the issue of... Um, a reaction to threats that people see the world as, un the world as unsafe. 
I wonder if that's a lagging indicator. For instance, people in New York, if you tapped a New Yorker, they would say New York is a dangerous place, even though every statistic says it's much safer than it was when I lived there you know, 40 years ago. So, I mean, that's one thing. Um, on edu- on, on, uh, from Dr. Cohen, on, on, uh, on education, I absolutely agree with you on healthcare. It's said about education, there's one disconnect I, don't, I, w- I wonder if you can talk about, which is university rankings. We're always, the, the United States and every ranking I've seen, I think the Financial Times just did one. We're, the U.S. is in the top, always in the top tiers of, you know, the top 100 universities in the world. China's nowhere. Or maybe it has one. I can't remember. And, and so uh, with, with our educational system as weak as you believe it is, why are universities so good? Or will they fail eventually too? And for Martin Lebicki, I have a quick question, which is I work in a dot-mill atmosphere. And, you know, we're constantly being uh, attacked. And as a result, my internet works, you know, as though I had a really crappy DSL line. Um, I frankly think the, the greatest danger to us is not... Iran, it's Comcast, but that's my personal view. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, if you want to take, talk about the fact that one of the things that struck me as I, as I read about this a lot is that a lot of the problems we have in the United States are talking about, you know, for instance, our electrical grid being subject to attack. It's the fact that the private business in America isn't doing its own job of putting in, you know, simple safeguards, changing passwords frequently, et cetera. I mean, if you just make a comment on that. That's... Okay, thank you. We have three Chris, uh, Michael. No, go first. So I'll answer your question by looking at the thing you talked about first with the elite, the gap between elites and the sort of rest of the population. You might about education. You're absolutely right. American education is quite good. It's actually not, there's been actually progress by Chinese schools. There, more of them are on the rankings. Fewer the American schools are not, not, not more schools are joining sort of the top 100 educational institutions, but generally by and large, U.S. higher education is pretty good. The problem, in my view, and this is a, uh, when I respond to say to Trevor, is that the gap between elites and non-elites is, is widening significantly. Um, just as an example of this, in, in the South and West of the U.S., the majority of school children in public schools are, are, are either at, below the poverty level or around the poverty level. Um, and that trend has continued. It's the first time since the 1960s seen that kind of levels of poverty. If you look at education uh, outcomes among younger generations, they're worse than older generations. That's a little bit counterintuitive to how we think about education, right? We think about usually the whole idea is that your, your kids do better than you, than you did and, and so on and so forth. We're having the reverse thing occurring. And so, so my response in a sense is like, you're absolutely right. At the elite level, our, our institutions are quite, quite successful. On the lower levels in our public schools, and, and they're not anywhere near as good as they should be. And it creates, in my view, you have a bit of an, you have an underclass that has lost the ability to uh, progress up the economic ladder the way that once existed in this country. And so I think that to me is the big concern. And so my, my fear is that you have a situation where you have a, a, a income inequality, not just, not, not just continuing on its current pace, but getting much worse. And that to me is what is, what is a serious challenge that we're dealing with. And I'll just be quick, maybe on elites and, and uh, Martin Dempsey again, General Dempsey gave a talk at the Harvard Kennedy School uh, in October of last year, so about a year ago, where he said he reviewed Steven Pinker's book, which some of you may be familiar with, about uh, talking about global decline of all kinds of violence. And he said, although the world seems more, it seems safer, it's actually much more dangerous. He said there's a security paradox. And he talked about 
ballistic missiles and exploding fertilizer and Iranians and Ebola and these very these things that he had elevated to take the threat take the place of actual threats what about complexity the complexity <laughs> un, unknown unknowns uncertainty and see I didn't work it in uh, the but it doesn't mean because he thinks that that it's true and he might have seen people die and then, you know but he's seen fewer of them die than anybody of, of any generation before so it's it's demonstrably false that it's a, it's a more dangerous world and and it, 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 for a variety of reasons. So and so why hasn't elite opinion caught up? Sometimes it takes a while. I think Barbara Tuckman, the historian, once said that in between the uh, para paraphrase in between the the a fundamental change and its recognition by rulers, a lag follows full of pitfalls. So that's where we are now, and that's why we we end up in Iraq. And you can look at the bright side. The longer people live, the longer they have to complain. So, uh, Martin. <laughs> Do you want me to complain? No, no, no. Answer the question about the, the cyber question. You mean about Comcast? I'm not quite too sure. Um. <laughs> yeah. Did I, did I mention that we spend seventy billion dollars a year on cyber protection? I mean, somebody mentioned a tax. We have we have a fairly substantial attack for, tax for cyber protection. Let me tell you a story about driving, and maybe illustrate this. Okay. The chances that you die on the next mile that you travel on, on the highways is one-fourth it was uh, 50 years ago. Now, a lot of people who emphasize, well, we need consumer education to be more cyber secure. I look at driving and I say, my kids are not four times better drivers than I was at that age. What has made us safer is safer cars, safer highways, EMS, and all the system paraphernalia, Okay. There is a lot that we can do to improve the systems. I can read a book without my eye getting infected. I can't say the same thing about going onto a website without my computer getting affected, and yet we have tolerated that. We tolerate in computers what we don't tolerate in any other form of life. That's where I'd put the fixes. Not educating the consumers. You know, my mythical grandmother is going to be as bad in computer security as she always was. I want a computer that allows her to be bad without consequences. <laughs> okay, thanks to the audience and thanks to the, very much to the panel. Mm -hmm.